Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history and tell you and my wonderful friends about it. I am your host, Kelvin, use he, him pronouns, and we're back again with my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts, Ryan and Jamie. Say hi, guys. Hi, I'm Ryan, uh, he, him pronouns. Hi, I'm Jamie, she, her pronouns. We're back from the New Year's break, and hopefully they're ready to get into some niche history. And so... Let's dive down the rabbit hole. You know, you really ought to do something about that stomach. I do everything about his stomach. Oh, yes. I give up wine. No good. I give up smokes. No good. I quit my work, no good. I move Miami, no good. I take appendix out, no good. Nothing, no good. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Have you considered shooting Franklin Roosevelt? You think that'd help? It couldn't hurt. How are y'all doing today, guys? I'm doing all right. Nothing I'm too doing much to pretty good. Staying warm, staying warm. Mm, it's kind of cold in my kind of cold. Yeah. Well, but uh, it's great to hear that y'all are doing all right. Uh, today, we're going to have a, another holiday-related topic. And for a little game, y'all are going to guess the holiday. Oh, it no. is in February. I mean, there's the easy, like, Valentine's Day. That feels too, too nope. mainstream. Jamie, what's your guess? Um... What else is even in February? There, well, I mean, there's Black History Month, but that's not a single holiday. That's um, um, a whole month. February. Um. Oh, wait, 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 wait. President's Day. There we go. Yes. <laughs> What's my prize? What do I get for guessing it right? Absolutely nothing, but the knowledge I'm about to give you. Oh, okay, that's good enough, I guess. <laughs> Yes, uh, February, one of the major federal holidays, is President's Day, also known as George Washington's birthday or Washington and Lincoln's birthday. It's any combination of those. Well, the federal holiday is George Washington's birthday. That's like the official what it is. But all the different states on the Rhone have different combinations of President's Day or George Washington slash Lincoln's birthday. And in most parts of the country, it takes place on the third Monday in February. For me, I always understood the holiday growing up as it took place on this day because it usually fell in between Lincoln and Washington's birthdays. Is that how y'all understood it growing up or how was it explained to y'all? Um, to be honest, no one ever really explained it to me. I was just like, all right, free day off of school. Yeah, that's pretty much how it was for me, too. I didn't <laughs> pay attention to the date. Yeah, because Lincoln's birthday is the 12th and Washington's the 22nd. And so mm. it falling on the third Monday, uh, the latest it can be is like the 21st, which is what it's going to be this year, 2022. And the earliest is. I don't know what the earliest could be math wise, probably like the 11th or something. Maybe. I don't know. No, there's no way. Probably like the 12th or something. Who knows? Someone can tell us. So yeah, how I understood it, it was always just for the two of them, but a lot of places it is for all the presidents. But of course, each place has to be special in its own way. And the reason why I say in most places, it's on the third Monday of February. It's because some states just had to be weird about it. For example, Massachusetts, they celebrate Washington's birthday on the third Monday in February, but they also have their own special President's Day on May 29th, which is Kennedy's birthday. And it is to honor presidents 
that come from Massachusetts. So hmm. Kennedy, the Adams, and Coolidge. So. Interesting. Then in New Mexico, uh, they celebrate the public holiday on the same day in February. But the paid state government holiday is on the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's, what? It was a random day to take it. And Wait, then, so the the Friday after Thanksgiving? So like Black is the Friday? Day that, or? Yeah, Black Friday mm-hmm, is the day that New Mexico state government employees get a day off for President's Day. Wow. That's weird. And then uh, Indiana probably has the most strange one. They celebrate George Washington's birthday on Mm -hmm. Christmas Eve. And Lincoln's birthday is on the Friday after Thanksgiving, Black Friday. On Christmas Eve. (laughs) It sounds like people were complaining about not getting those holidays. And then they were like, well, we can't just give you an extra day for Christmas. So we got to give it we got to call it something. And so it's uh, a president's day. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like we have a name of a holiday we can use. We'll just put it around whenever people are actually taking the day off. Yeah. So, yeah, the holiday began at the federal level in 1879. And it originally was celebrated on the 22nd, just whenever it fell in the month. It wasn't until 1971 that the holiday was shifted to the third Monday. Uh, with the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which also made Labor Day become a Monday, Memorial Day become a Monday, and Columbus Day was created by this act, which was also on a Monday, a shifting Monday. And then Veterans Day was actually also moved to be a Monday in November, but then they changed it back to where it just falls on the 11th now. So. The shift means that Washington's birthday is never actually celebrated on his birthday, Hmm. making it similar to the British Commonwealth countries uh, who celebrate the Queen's official birthday at times that do not necessarily correspond with her actual birthday. Hmm. Another weird thing I found out about this birthday is that George Washington was not actually born. On February 22nd. Why? He was born on February 11th, 1731. The discrepancy and the reason why we say he's born on the 22nd is due to the fact that the British Empire at the time did not use the same calendar that we do today. Today, we use the Gregorian calendar. Back whenever George Washington was born, they still used the old Julian calendar. The Gregorian calendar has been around since 1582, but because it was introduced by the Pope and England at the time had just done its whole breaking away from the Catholic Church thing, they did not swap over until 1752. And so there's an entire couple of generations there who have, it's like an old style date and a new style date. And so it's on the two separate days. Hmm. The difference between the two is that the Gregorian calendar is more accurate um, because the Julian calendar is exactly 365.25 days long. And the Gregorian calendar is 365.2425 days long. And so the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar shift relative to each other. And so at the time, whenever they swapped over back in the 1750s, the Julian calendar was 11 days behind the Gregorian calendar. So whenever they made the swap, all the dates just got moved retroactively. Mm -hmm. And I think the gap between the Julian and Gregorian calendar has actually grown to where nowadays it's probably like closer to 13 days difference between the two. As much as I'd like to sit here and talk about how we track time, um, and maybe we will one day, I don't know. But uh, the primary topic of today's episode is 
what we will move on to next. Here is the main premise of the episode. How many presidents of the United States have been assassinated? Oh, are we guessing? I think it's three. I think it's five. Three and five. Wait, no, no, no. Six. Can we name them? Six. Six. Okay. Uh, Lincoln. Yeah. JFK. Mm -hmm. Garfield, right? Are those your guesses? Yeah, but I feel like there was another one. Because there have been a lot more like assassination attempts, but I forget which ones are successful. There's at least those three. I know Garfield is one. You guessed sure. six, Jamie, so you need to come up with some names. <laughs> I was just throwing a number out there. <laughs> I was like, we've had what, like 43 presidents? I feel like that's a good guess. There might be a fourth one, but I can't, I can't think of it. So there have been four successful presidential assassinations. Um, and the four of them... You know, Lincoln and Kennedy are the two that everybody knows about. And mm-hmm. so today we are going to discuss the other guys that got shot. Um, and they've all been shot because we'll get into someone said why. And it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. But all the presidents who have been killed have been shot. So interesting. The first Well, the first one, obviously, was Abraham Lincoln getting shot at Ford's Theater. The second one was James Garfield, the 20th president. Garfield was born in 1831. He was the last president to be born in a log cabin. He grew up poor and fatherless, but he managed to save up enough funds to go to college in 1856, and he began teaching classics after he graduated. After becoming president of college in 1859, he was elected as a Republican to the Ohio State Senate. And then whenever the Civil War began, he joined the Union Army and did fairly well there. He met some military success and he became promoted to a brigadier general and a major general during his service. But he ultimately left the military in 1862 in order to serve in Congress And he was elected to nine terms during his time there. He was an adamant supporter of the abolition of slavery, and he thought Confederate leaders should have their plantations seized and be exiled, or they should be executed as a means of ensuring the end of slavery and the war. He was very critical of Lincoln as president believing him not to be tough enough against the rebellious South, even to the point where he did not support Lincoln's re-election in 1864. After the war ended, Garfield was staunchly pro-suffrage for newly freed Black Americans, and he was very much anti the next president, Andrew Johnson. And at the time, he was very much one of the radical Republicans, but his views and the aggressiveness of them, they eventually mellowed out um, as his prestige in Congress and in the Republican Party grew to eventually becoming the Republican leader in the House of Representatives. In 1880, Garfield supported his friend and colleague, John Sherman, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, and who was the brother of Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman, as nominee for president. So now we're going to dive into some really niche uh, inter-party politics at the time, but it's important to understand (laughs) what happens in the future. So the Republican Party was split into two factions at the time. The stalwarts, which supported the current system of political patronage and party machines, where if you win an election, you give your buddies all the good jobs in government or people that helped you win, you give them jobs also. Um, Then on the other side, there were the half-breeds who desired to reform the bureaucracy and make it more of a meritocracy, put in some like, test and kind of do away with the patronage system. I bet you can tell which side came up with those names. 
but Sherman was a half-breed. He supported some reform to the civil service. Other major candidates at the time were James Blaine, a senator from Maine and former Speaker of the House. He was also a half-breed, and he was considered the front-runner for that faction. And then the main stalwart candidate was Ulysses S. Grant, who was running for a third non-consecutive term as president. Garfield was kind of not really affiliated with either side, but by having his friends, you know, he supported a half-breed candidate. So he slightly favored them, but he was not strictly aligned with either side. And so this is 1880. Before there were presidential primaries where people went out and vote. So basically, the candidate was decided at the party convention in June. At the time, there were 755 total delegates, meaning that you needed 378 to win. And how it works is with multiple candidates, all these delegates will vote. And if no one hits that 378, you know, number you need to win, then you hold another ballot. And usually the candidates that have a smaller amount of support will throw their support behind someone else and the numbers will eventually grow. A lot of bargains and deal making in back smoky rooms, you know, that sort of stuff. That's this time. And so um, the first ballot happens in the convention, which is taking place in Chicago. And Grant wins 304 votes, Blaine 284, and Sherman 93, and some other people, but those are the main ones. So no one won a majority, so they hold a second round. Grant, 305 delegates, Blaine 282, Sherman 94. So they had a third round. Grant, 305, Blaine 282, Sherman 93. You get the picture. The people are standing by their candidates. And the divide is so strong that this pattern continues on for 35 rounds of voting over multiple days. And so after 35 rounds with little to no progress being made, uh, people are beginning to come up with all sorts of ideas on how to get past this um, impasse. Well, the half-breeds began to make some discussions and they determined that because they had multiple candidates, they were kind of vote splitting a little bit. And so they decided that they could all put their support behind Garfield, who did not want to run for president. He was not a candidate at this point. But they decided that if they put all the half-breed support behind him, and because he wasn't super aligned with the half-breeds, that he could also get some of the stalwart votes that they might be able to get someone in and end this continuous rounds of voting. And so on the 36th ballot, Garfield received 399 votes to Grant's 306 thus securing the nomination as a dark horse candidate. Just because people were fed up with voting 35 times. Yes. And so as a compromise, they selected the stalwart Chester A. Arthur to be the vice president. And so that was their compromise ticket to kind of secure both sides of the factions. And together... Garfield and Arthur went on to win probably the closest presidential race in history uh, with the popular vote margin between the two parties being only around 2000 votes. The electoral count was a little bit wider, but as far as like strict popular vote, it was about as close as you could get. And this is also impressive because back then voter turnout was over 80%. So, wow. He was inaugurated as the 20th president 
on the 4th of March, 1881. So now it is time to introduce the other character of this story, a Mr. Charles J. Guiteau. Guiteau was born in 1841, and he grew up in Wisconsin and Illinois. He moved around a little bit. He failed his entrance exams to get into the University of Michigan. Because of this, he decided to join the Oneida religious community in upstate New York, which would probably be considered a cult, but at the time it was considered a utopian settlement. And uh, he was not very popular there. One of Oneida's, the Oneida community thing was, um, we would understand it as polyamory nowadays, but they just said open marriage. And so it was very open sexually. And apparently Gateau was not one of the people who welcome in a lot of those relationships. He did not get along very well there. That's going to hurt. And in a community like that, the second you're not one of the, if you're not invited to all the groups, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Ten days. Um, he did not find a lasting spot within the settlement. And like I said, he was not very popular. Uh, I think one of the nicknames they gave him was Get Out, Gitto. Oh, that's so mean. <laughs> and ultimately he did. He moved to Chicago with some inheritance money and he started up a law firm, but he was not financially successful because it just wasn't his cup of tea, I guess. And so as lawyers tend to do, he became interested in Republican politics. And during the 1880 convention, which was in Chicago, he wrote a speech to support Grant's campaign. Gateau was a stalwart. Well, Grant did not win the nomination. And after Garfield became the candidate, Gateau altered his speech to support Garfield. Basically, he just took his speech and every and just replaced the names Grant with Garfield without any consideration of the policies. He just swapped out the names. He gave the speech on a few occasions to small crowds in his neighborhood, but, you know, it wasn't anything super major. But after Garfield won, uh, Guiteau became convinced that his speech had single-handedly swung the election, securing it for Garfield. And as such... Guiteau thought that he should be rewarded with a consul or ambassador position, probably in like Austria or France. Those were like, he really wanted to go to Paris. So he wanted a patronage job, something a stalwart would do after getting a half-breed candidate to win. But, you know. What kind, what kind of personality does it take as well of, I mean, obviously you only went over his failures and stuff, but it doesn't seem like this guy's on the up and up. And then all of a sudden he's just won someone's presidential campaign. Like what mindset is that? What a, what a dweeb. I mean, it gets a little, this character, he gets up there and you'll see in a bit. Um, I mean, even this next thing, uh, he began writing the white house and the new campaign asking for such a position, telling them about how qualified he was. He wasn't, but he was, you know, hyping himself. And uh, none of his letters to the White House ever got a response. And so he moves to Washington, D.C. without any sort of like setup there or any sort of funds. He just up and moves to Washington, D.C. So that way he can better accept his new post and he can sort of convene with the new administration. And maybe his letters just aren't getting through the mail. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, and on May 14th, 1881, he even encountered James Blaine, one of the former candidates who is now Secretary of State, and kept asking him about, you know, 
Hey, you know, have you got my letters about this position in Paris? You know, I really want that consulship. I helped you all win and everything. And uh, Blaine apparently blew up at Gato and was very much like, quit harassing us, like stop sending <laughs> us letters. This didn't go over very well. And so it was at this moment that Gato decided to kill the president. He would do it uh, for retaliation, for not getting the job that he wanted, and also to, quote, unify the Republican Party to get rid of this dangerous stalwart half-breed split. He thought about using dynamite, but decided that it was too <laughs> dangerous. He didn't know how to use dynamite. And also, using dynamite to kill the leader of your country is a Russian thing to do. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, a Russian czar had recently been, uh, they blew up his carriage with dynamite, but... Um, oh. He, but yeah, using dynamite is too Russian of a way to kill the president. Um, he also thought about stabbing Garfield, but decided that Garfield was too strong and he, quote, would have crushed the life out of me with a single blow of his fist. End quote. <laughs> so at least you can admit that he's a little wimp, like, just kind of playing a, I don't know, a coward's game. Yeah. And so, uh, Ultimately, he decided to shoot Garfield because that would be, quote, the American way to do it. Of course, yes. <laughs> and so it he, involves guns, it's American. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like I said, all the presidents that have been killed have been shot. So I guess, you know, it's a pattern now. <laughs> but, um, he took a small loan from one of his buddies and bought a small revolver and he began stalking President Garfield. He had several opportunities at the president because this was before the Secret Service had taken up the responsibility of protecting them. Um, at the time, they was believed that Lincoln's assassination was just a byproduct of the Civil War. And all that craziness. And so they did not think that in normal times that people would go out and try to kill the president. So there was no need for him to walk around with security. Like I said, Gateau had several opportunities to kill the president, but he chickened out on several occasions. Once he followed Garfield to his church, but decided that he didn't want any of the other worshipers to be injured in you know, the shootout that would happen and the panic. He followed Garfield to the train station, but Garfield's wife looked too sick at the time and he just couldn't do it while she was there looking so ill. And another time he was going to shoot the president, but his son was there and, oh, he just can't kill his father right in front of his kids. So they didn't do it then. After a while, he was getting impatient and running out of money um, to just live a life of stalking a dude. So on the morning of July 2nd, he wrote a letter to the White House calling the president's impending death, quote, a sad necessity. And he also wrote a letter to General William Sherman asking him to mobilize the army to free him from jail after he will be arrested. He, he was fully expecting to like get caught. So on July 2nd at like 9.30, he went to the train station where Garfield was about to leave for his summer vacation. Gitto approached Garfield in the waiting room, shot him twice. The first bullet grazed the president's arm and the second bullet lodged in his lower back behind his pancreas. He was tackled by the police and taken to a nearby police station to prevent the crowd from lynching him because guy just walked in and shot the president. And when they asked him why he shot the POTUS, he said, quote, I am a stalwart of the stalwarts. I did it and I want to be arrested. Arthur is president now. So this led to 
a brief scenario where people thought that Arthur was involved in order to somehow elevate himself to the presidency. Didn't turn out to be true, but it just led to some conspiracy theories. The bullet that lodged in Garfield's back missed his spinal column and had lodged in some non-essential soft tissue. With modern medicine, it would have only taken him a few days in the hospital to recover. And antiseptic medicine was known about at the time, but none of the physicians caring for Garfield believed in its efficacy. They did not believe that the atmosphere and their bodies were filled and covered with germs because that's ridiculous. And so as such, they repeatedly probed the president's body with unsanitized equipment and their hands while searching for the bullets, which over the next few weeks caused Garfield's condition ultimately degrade due to sepsis and infection. He ultimately lost almost 100 pounds as his physicians limited his diet and attempted to drain the large amounts of pus from his body. Alexander Graham Bell actually invented a metal detector in order to try and find the bullet, but the leading physician caring for the president had a real bad ego problem working with a celebrity such as Graham Bell. And so he insisted that the bullet was in a location that was different from where it was in reality. And so whenever they were using this metal detector to look for the bullet, they were looking in the wrong spot and they could not find it. Yeah, that it didn't work out. But ultimately, as the president became more and more feeble, he became he'd be taken with these uh, immense pains and um, spasms. He called them tiger attacks. He might have been hallucinating a little bit too. But in order to make him more comfortable, the Navy actually invented one of the first air conditioning units in order to lower the temperature in the hot Washington, D.C. summers. And ultimately, whenever it was obvious what was going to happen, uh, Garfield asked to be moved to a cottage that he liked to stay in Long Branch, New Jersey on the coast. And with less than 24 hours um, before his arrival, the residents of the town, after finding out the president was coming to stay, they expanded the railroad line so that way he would not have to ride in a bumpy carriage off to his lodge, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, they can just, wow. So he's the reason for expanded railways. Yeah, uh, like half a mile of railroad and an air conditioner, yeah. Um, But ultimately on September 1881, Garfield passed away. So... We hop back to Gateau. Gateau's trial began on November 17th of the same year. He wanted to defend himself in court, but the court appointed him a lawyer who subsequently quit the job in less than a week because he just couldn't work with the guy. And Gateau is ultimately represented by his brother-in-law because no one else would do it. Now, his brother-in-law was not a trial lawyer. He worked in like real estate or something, but you know, it's fine. You just need someone to stand there. The defense uh, tried to argue that Gateau had temporary insanity, but Gateau did not like the notion that he was insane. And so he quote, insisted that while he had been legally insane at the time of the shooting, because God had taken away his free will, he was not really medically insane. I think that gives him more ammo to say that he was medically insane. Yeah, he was basically undermining his own defense. The defense called on a lot of experts to claim that, yes, he was in fact medically insane. But the prosecution 
argued that since he had been stalking the president for months and temporary insanity does not really qualify because it had been so long premeditated. (laughs) And (laughs) Guiteau at one point even claimed uh, that medical malpractice had killed the president, saying, quote, the doctors killed Garfield. I just shot him. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of true. In hindsight, he was right, but yeah. That doesn't help your defense, though, when you're trying to get away with assassinating the president. Yeah. So, um, as you can understand, um, this trial was quite a media sensation, given the personality of the people involved. Gateau would pass notes around the courtroom, asking the audience to give him free legal advice. (laughs) What? And he was given to bouts of ranting and, like I said, immediately undercutting his attorney's arguments. Um, And it did not take long for the jury to find him guilty, ultimately. After hearing his verdict, he stood up to give a final statement and he faced the jury and said, quote, you are all low consummate jackasses. He sounds kind of unhinged. I think, and by kind of, I mean a lot. Yeah, I think he actually had something very mentally wrong, but obviously this is the 1880s and nobody's going to say anything about it. But yeah. this, man, this man needed help long before he even stalked the president. I mean, he was obsessively trying to get a job that he like was never even in the running for. What are you talking about? He single-handedly won Garfield that job. Oh, that's right. That's right. My bad. My bad. Here's a photo of the guy. Oh, yeah. There's nothing behind those eyes. (laughs) I mean, so I've heard my fair share of, like, murder stories and just all that kind of stuff. And every time they go into people's backstories of anyone that had some kind of mental illness, this was like, that was the story that you just told of. As a child, you know, he grew up, you know, it's like he... We don't really know what happened as a child, but then he ran off and did this and that didn't work. And then he went and did this and this didn't work. And then he just, you know, nothing ever went right for the guy. And well, he probably was never fun to deal with, but he's probably, like I said, he's probably got something seriously wrong with him. And so he, that man needed help. (laughs) Yeah. Good tell after being tried, found guilty and sentenced to be executed. He was convinced that the new president, Arthur would pardon him because Gateau had done him a favor by raising his salary now that he was president. And he insisted that he was going to get pardoned and so was not at all worried about being executed. Well, on June 30th, 1882 was the date of his execution. He had not been pardoned. So the day arrives. He contemplated arriving at the gallows dressed in only his underwear. So as to remind the audience of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But uh, he backed down after people pointed out that this would just further provide evidence of his insanity. Which would incense him. He did not like the notion of being considered insane. And he, so he rove dressed in normal garments and his final words were a poem he had wrote while incarcerated titled, I am going to the Lordy. And after reading the poem, his signal to the execution that he was ready to die was dropping the paper that he had the poem on. And so he was executed by hanging. His body was initially buried in the prison courtyard, but afterwards they've discovered that articles from the execution, like pieces of the rope that had hung him, were being auctioned off to the crowd that was there and people that wanted souvenirs. And so the body was disinterred and sent to the National Museum of Health and Medicine. Today, the museum has his skeleton and a portion of his brain is on display at the 
Muter Museum in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. Um, you're talking about him having something seriously wrong with him. I believe today it is widely speculated that he probably had syphilis, which left untreated long-term leads to brain rot, basically. Mm. And he also had a medical condition where the foreskin of his penis would not retract, which would have caused severe pain and swelling if he ever got erect. So is that why he wasn't in the groups of the... (laughs) Uh, I don't know, but at the time people were like, oh, his penis is f***ed up. That's why he's insane. Oh, that's exactly why he's insane, yes. (laughs) The two conditions are not connected, but yeah. So that is the uh, tale of Charles J. Gattel. That was wild, like from start to finish. I thought it'd be something more normal, like he just hated his policies or something. No, the guy was crazy. He just wanted a trip to France. He just wanted a trip to France. (laughs) (laughs) The guy was crazy. But now the fourth president who was assassinated was a Mr. William McKinley, who was the 25th president of the United States. He was born in 1843, also in Ohio. Whenever the Civil War broke out, he volunteered for the Army and was the final president to have served in the war. He served throughout the war and became good friends with his mentor, Rutherford B. Hayes. After the war, he got married, became a prominent lawyer, became interested in politics through campaigning for his friend Hayes. Ultimately, Hayes would become president in 1876, the same year that McKinley was elected to Congress as a Republican. And he served in the House for 14 years, where he quickly rose through the ranks to sit on the very prominent Ways and Means Committee, which does all sorts of money stuff, basically. Like if you're an economy guy, that's the most powerful. And he got there in his second term which is very impressive. Anyways, from this position, he was able to pass laws that implemented tariffs on foreign goods as a way to help boost American industry after the war. And from this position of power, Democrats in the state legislature, they did not like that this Republican from their state had so much power in Congress. And so they repeatedly tried to gerrymander his congressional district in an attempt to put him at a disadvantage and make him lose his next election. And I think they did this like three times and it failed to work as he would continue to win elections, even after they changed which congressional district he was running in. So it kept failing until ultimately uh, 1890, whenever he lost his election after they gerrymandered it again but he lost it by only 300 votes running in all these elections and being somewhat of a national figure led to him growing in popularity to the point where he was elected the governor of Ohio in 1891, an office which he served until 1896. Okay, another weird niche politics, but more economy at the time. Uh, During McKinley's time as governor, the panic of 1893 occurred. This panic was the worst economic depression in the U.S. history prior to the Great Depression. Um, the origins of the panic, incredibly complicated because, of course, it is. But some of the important points were, at the time, the U.S. currency was based on gold and silver. You could take your cash to a bank where they would give you the appropriate amount of specie is what it was called, hard metal, that you know you could sell back to the bank when needed and that sort of stuff. Well, in times of economic turmoil, people 
valued the metal more than they did paper money, which would lead to runs on the banks and a depletion of gold and silver stores. So people were running on the banks and a recent spree of silver mining in the American West led to so much silver entering the market that prices dropped. And then there was also a collapse of wheat prices at the same time. And so you had widespread unemployment. The value of U.S. currency was deflating, going down in value, and the U.S. was running out of its stored gold. So a lot of bad stuff happening. And the government at the time, which was under the Democrat Grover Cleveland, their response was not very popular um, and it was not necessarily good. It got so bad that at one point, the U.S. had basically lost so much of its gold reserves that it had to take out a loan from the famous J.P. Morgan. So the U.S. lost so much money that it had to take out a personal loan from basically the Jeff Bezos of the time in order to have enough money to run. All this to say that uh, McKinley was able to win the nomination for the Republican Party, and due to the popular discontent, he was able to win the White House in 1896. Under this new administration, the economy generally recovered, and the U.S. won the Spanish-American War, thus gaining a bunch of overseas territories such as Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, had protectorate status over Cuba. And during the same time, the U.S. also annexed Hawaii. So we're not going to dwell too long on that because we're probably going to come back to those in future episodes. Um, but the main thing is that McKinley oversaw a period of prosperity and expansion. And so it was easily reelected in 1900, this time with Theodore Roosevelt, a hero of the Spanish-American War, as his vice president. After his second inauguration, McKinley decided that he was going to take a nationwide train tour. People out west had never seen a president before, so it was going to be this big deal. The route would take a big clockwise loop around the country, going to the south and then up the west coast and back across. And it would end at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. And if you remember back to one of the previous episodes, these types of expositions were very popular at the time. He made it as far as California before the first lady got deathly ill. And so the trip had to be cut short and they returned to DC and to kind of recuperate. And he also ended up spending a lot of time in Canton, Ohio to renovate his home because he has the time to do that as president, I guess. Um, and he ended up postponing his visit to the exposition until September. Now we introduce the assailant, Leon Shogol, no, Sholgas. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name now all of a sudden. Sholgas. It's C-Z-O-L-G-O-S-E. Leon Sholgas. He was born in Michigan, 1873, to a family of Polish immigrants. He ended up moving to Cleveland as a teenager and worked in a factory. Um, I think he did like glass working or something. And during the panic of 1893, the factory that he worked for cut wages. And as a result, the workers went on strike. Sholgotz was fired for participating in the strike and was subsequently blacklisted from being employed at similar factories in the area. He was able to get his job back by using a false name. And he worked there for a few more years until ultimately he left his job in 1898 and moved to live with his family on the family farm. During this period of his life, he became increasingly interested in the political theories of anarchism. Anarchism's pretty broad political ideology, but Basically, it's left-wing, and the main things is that it believes in the, un in the abolition of unjust hierarchies and power structures. That can be anything from the government, 
capitalism, religion, name anything you want, there's probably an anarchism for that. Uh, Shulgat seems to be particularly interested in the capitalism aspect. Uh, he was very much concerned with the generation of massive wealth inequality at the expense of exploiting the working class. So yeah, he became very interested, started going to groups and meetings, um, reading up a lot of theory, I guess. I don't know. There is one meeting that he went to where he talked about using violence and uh, people at the meeting after he left were very much concerned that he was like a government plant trying to entrap them or something. So he's becoming more involved in these groups. And in 1900, the Italian monarch was assassinated by an anarchist. And this seems to have inspired Shulgatz to do the same thing to President McKinley. Basically, he believed that by killing the president, it would serve as a spark to ignite a revolution from the working class. This type of thing is called the propaganda of the deed, for those who wanted to know more about theory, I guess. Anyways, McKinley, it is now September. He makes his appearance at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. And he gives several speeches, tries out all the new fun finangled stuff, And on September 6th, the day after he's given his last speech and seeing some of the attractions, he goes to the Temple of Music on the fairgrounds. And he was going to do like a little meet and greet, basically, with the people there. You could walk up in a line and shake hands with the president. This was very much against the wishes of McKinley's staff. They tried to remove this event from his schedule twice, but each time McKinley insisted that it be put on there. And McKinley did not like to be surrounded by security. He was just a personable guy. And so people could just walk straight up to him. And so seven minutes into shaking hands, Sholgotz, who was in line, it was his turn to shake hands with the president. When the president extended his hand, Sholgotz slapped it out of the way. And with a handkerchief wrapped around a revolver, he shot the president twice in the chest at point-blank range. The first bullet ricocheted off one of McKinley's vest buttons and like went into his jacket, so it didn't really do a whole lot. But the second bullet entered his gut. Before Shulgatz could take another shot, the man behind him in line tackled Shulgatz, and a bunch of other people joined in. And they basically began being the shit out of him. McKinley almost fell over, but his staff kept him from falling down. And they went and sat him down in a chair where he told the crowd to, quote, go easy on him. Referring to Shulgatz. And eventually the police, you know, came and took him away to a nearby police station. And president was taken to a hospital which funnily enough marks one of the first times a president rode in an automobile but whenever they arrived at the hospital they discovered that there were no qualified surgeons or doctors there to provide care the best surgeon in buffalo at the time was in niagara and he was performing a life-saving neck surgery at the time And so whenever his co-workers arrived asking him to quickly return to the hospital due to a, quote, emergency, he allegedly responded, quote, I cannot leave, even if it was the president of the United States. They then informed him that it was indeed the president of the United States who needed his help. Um, They did eventually find a physician and McKinley underwent surgery to remove the bullet. And over the next few days, he seemed to recover, but soon after gangrene set in and on September 14th, 1901, President McKinley passed away. Shulgat's trial was set for September 23rd, 1901, and he admitted to his guilt, quote, I killed President McKinley because I did my duty. I didn't believe one man should have so much service 
and another man should have none, end quote. And because this trial was so rushed, his defense had no time to prepare much of any sort of argument. They tried to argue insanity. Their reasoning was that anyone who tried to kill the president in front of such a large crowd, knowing that there is no hope for escape, must by definition be insane. But in order to rule insanity at the time, the perpetrator had to be oblivious to what he was doing. And Shulgatz admitted that he knew exactly what he was doing and he intended to do it. The trial lasted two days. And after 30 minutes of deliberation, the jury found him guilty, sentencing sentencing him to death. On October 29th, 1901, he was electrocuted using an electric chair. And his last words were, quote, I killed the president because he was an enemy of the good people, the working people. I am not sorry for my crime, end quote. He was buried in the prison courtyard, but in order to avoid a repeat of the last fiasco, before his casket was sealed, they covered his body in sulfuric acid so that he would be destroyed. Wow. Hmm. Um, yeah, the trial was very much rushed compared to other similar events. And since that time, many have tried to portray Shulgatz as mentally disturbed or in a similar manner that Gato was. Um, this doesn't really seem to be the case in my analysis. Um, I mean, it's, it's an attempt to undercut the threat that his political ideology of anarchism posed to like the government. If only crazy people kill those in power, then it like undercuts the seriousness of his convictions and motivations, I guess. Um, I mean, even on the white house website where it lists all the presidents, they even call Gato deranged. I mean, they call Shulgatz deranged. And so I mean, I don't necessarily blame those in power for diminishing the perception of political violence, but, you know, it's just kind of interesting how they've gone about trying to portray that kind of moves the goalposts of the argument is what I'm saying. You don't have to Mm. argue about his position on, you know, wealth inequality. It's just, oh, he was crazy because he shot a guy. Yeah, that does seem very diminishing in certain ways, especially with how I guess together he seemed to have it during the trial, at least from the few quotes that you gave. It didn't seem like he was just rambling and undercutting his own lawyers and everything like Gateau, but. Yeah, it wasn't as much of a media spectacle. Mm. <laughs> but um, so, yeah. Uh, another fact that I learned about researching this. Um, interestingly, there is one person who ties both of these events together and the events of another presidential assassination. Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Of course, his father was shot, but Robert had rejected his father's invitation to join him at Ford's Theater that night. And then in 1881, Robert Lincoln was President Garfield's Secretary of War and was with him at the train station the day he was shot, standing about 40 feet away. And then after retiring from a career in politics, um, he served as an ambassador later, but um, he worked in the railroad industry. And on the day that President McKinley was shot, he was traveling by train to Buffalo to visit the exposition and to see the president. And the moment he arrived in Buffalo, he learned via telegram of the assassination. So he That's was weird. Uh, yeah. This man had a rough time. Yeah. yeah. He was probably not invited to any political thing ever again. Just like, <laughs> don't get him around a president. Like, yeah, Bob, he, he's not coming. Don't. Yeah, no. But yeah, I was just kind of neat that he was at three, basically, you know, 
he was so close to them. Mm. But um, yeah, I imagine that led to a lot of trauma in his life. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, in my lifetime, you know, in a lot of people's lifetime, in a good number of people's lifetimes, they haven't lived through a presidential assassination. Yeah. And then there's, when was Lincoln's? 1865. 65 to like 91 or something. So like a 30 or 40 years one, Yeah. A one. So any 40 year old born in like the sixties would have witnessed three of the four assassinations. Yeah. Like there had to be a time where people were just scared of that happening all the time. And it's like, you know, relatively to relative to the time that we've been around. It's like, that was such a short time for all three. Yeah. It was very much uh, disturbed, you know, it was disruptive, I guess you could say, because I mean, Garfield was only president for a couple of months before he was shot, you know? So yeah, it was very disruptive. And I mean, all sorts of world leaders were getting assassinated. Like I mentioned the Russian czar who got blew up with dynamite, you know, the Italian king was shot. So it wasn't an uncommon occurrence as it is today. Mm. Yeah, also um, without the medical malpractice or the now yeah. seeking service and all that, the protections against it. Yeah. It yeah, the medical malpractice. <laughs> we aren't sticking gross fingers in the wounds now. Ew. Um but the piece of media that brought this subject to my attention was um it was a Stephen Sondheim musical written about the successful or would be assassins of presidents of the United States. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it was written back in 1990 and is titled Assassins. Uh, it had mixed reviews, but in 2004, the show arrived on Broadway and won five Tony Awards, including wow. the best revival of a musical. It's all right. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris is in it, and uh, he plays a character called the Balladeer, which is basically like a narrator for most of the, like he narrates all the assassinations. Um, and his songs are the best, but uh, the twist at the ending is that he is also Lee Harvey Oswald. And so they save the Kennedy assassination for like the last song or whatever. And he turns into that character. But yeah, that's the show. The less known assassinations. Yeah. The other guys. <laughs> So uh, I feel like Gateau is so much more interesting than Lincoln's or JFK's assassination because of Gateau. Yeah, it's it's the man himself. <laughs> it is truly wild. No one knows him or even the president he got shot because it's just he served for such a short amount of time. And a lot of the presidents of that era are just forgettable in general, you know. So yeah, that's our show. Hopefully y'all enjoyed it, learned something new. Uh, if you like what you heard, please leave us a positive review. Tell your friends about us. Our music is by Mountaineer, and you can find their music and more on Upbeat.io. At the beginning of the episode, you actually sample a little bit of music from the Assassin's Musical. And so if you want to check that out, feel free. It's, you know, it's all right. As always, I'd like to acknowledge that we are Recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, and other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for coming down the rap hole with me. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.